You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome to the episode, guys, today on conflict management. Um, Just a quick note to say this episode sounds slightly tinny as it was conducted over Zoom. Um, Our interview today is with a guest, Ray Goodall. I'm going to introduce him uh, in the podcast itself, but just to say, please do stick with it. He's got pearls of wisdom across the podcast Uh, He used to fly tornado aircraft and navigate them, and he's done everything in the military and outside the military, up into brief presidents and prime ministers, and uh, is certainly the right man to talk to about conflict from a military perspective, and I'll pull that through into a medical perspective as well. But please do bear with us with the sound quality, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks. So welcome guys to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast uh, with me, Owen Walker. I'm here today with a, a friend, Ray Goodall. So Ray is an accomplished ex-military senior officer who is skilled at developing cohesive teams and has served a long um, and varied career within the RAF and the extended military. So he's, he's done a, a number of roles, both internationally and at home. Uh, Ray has also uh, been a liaison and advisor to both presidents, ambassadors and generals in complex multinational combat environments. Ray's got a really extensive history, both in unparalleled cross-cultural competence developed both for many years serving across the world and in the UK and has served um, both with a mutual friend of ours uh, extensively in the UAE and uh, in various other locations. Ray's also got extensive combined joint force and air uh, component crisis planning experience and has worked operationally and at a strategic level for a number of years. His, uh, his CV goes on and is, is absolutely extensive, uh, but he's both worked at national military and at international level for NATO and multinational players. So welcome to the uh, podcast, Ray. Oh, thanks very much. That's a fantastic bio. So, Ray, what I wanted to do today really is is unpack it quite a specific question, really, and then look at facets of that question, but just really look into um, conflict resolution and then a few other attributes as well around uh, coaching and mentoring, but also uh, look into some of the some of the theoretical empirical um, data around conflict resolution, some de-escalation techniques, but really just primarily dr- dr- drill into your uh, experience, Ray, uh, from, from, from a conflict res- resolution perspective. Okay. So what I thought I'd do initially, uh, Ray, is um, I, just, I thought we'd just open this by, by getting what conflict resolution means to you, really. I, I instantly look at conflict resolution in resolving conflict within a campaign or an operation um, involving uh, military personnel. But of course, I think right from the upstart, it's very important that modern military operations and and, uh, conflicts that uh, we can be involved with are multinational, almost always. And also, in, in, in resolution, it isn't just the military. A military uh, general cannot resolve conflict. He is working his line of operation on behalf of the government, on behalf of a, a, an alliance, maybe NATO. Uh, and you're looking across government to support. So people like the Foreign Office, uh, uh, you know, who can offer diplomacy. Uh, information is very, very important. I mean, we're seeing right now 
in recent times reports just in the press of foreign nations trying to be involved in, in uh, uh, results of um, elections here in the UK. Well, maybe that is through information because the information domain is huge these days. So that's a tool that is used extensively by governments. Diplomacy we've talked about and also economic, you know, support in economic terms or even um, sanctions, you know, and then if all those fail and, and nothing else, you know, the military is the last cause to perhaps help shape the environment to bring you to that resolution. So it, it's huge in my mind, and I could, we, we could talk about it for a, a, an awful long time, but as well as diplomacy, information, economics, and military, uh, the huge term that you've got to be applied across the board there is also culturally resolving conflict uh, when you're dealing with completely different cultures, you know, it, it is very, very important. And obviously the, 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 the big one they've been involved in for a long time now is, is the Afghan region, ISIS, you know, both religious and cultural implications. Uh, incredibly, incredibly um, important culture. Can I, can I also go on now <laughs> to... Um, you know, in conflict resolution, um, across all those domains, I think we and one of the themes that perhaps we'll talk about more as we go through uh, this podcast is that there's three broad levels of, of in military terms, but I think you can relate them to uh, business, to the NHS, to any way you want. But you know, the, the, the levels that we work at, strategic level, the highest level, the policies that is government you know, giving you policy. The operational level, where that's where I've really been working, and most military men, in fact, almost all military men, I, I, you mentioned in my bio there, that perhaps it was miswritten or, you know, I've worked at the strategic level. I've been at, at the strategic level as an operational man. I, 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 you only work at the operational level. Um, one, of the, one of the best generals I ever heard speak, and uh, I've met him three or four times, uh, was General Mattis whose name might ring a bell um, because he went on to be Secretary of State for Defence for the United States. But he was uh, a United States Marine General. Uh, he was Commander Joint Forces, the United States Forces. Okay, so pretty high-level stuff. And he stood up and said, look, I work at the operational level. So don't ever think any of you are going to work at the strategic level because no military man sets objectives uh, uh, for conflict resolution, it said. It's a, it's a political guidance, and you must have that political aim because otherwise, you know, it'd be a coup. We don't want to live in those sort of domains. So, you, you know, strategic operational, and the, and the level that we all know, and the level we all resort back to all the time, is the tactical level. You know, how you fly your airplane, how you how you drop your weapon, how you uh, perhaps you know, there's, there's more than just fighting. Of course, that you know, you use the military for. Um, disaster relief and things like that to how, how, you, how you land in short base airfields and all that sort of thing. Uh, that's the tactical level, the, the, the all-important tactical level. But those three levels of warfare, you know, when you're looking at conflict resolution, it's the strategic level. You, you know, you support the what I call dime, di uh, diplomacy, information, military, economic, dime seed, dime culture, you know, so it, it, it's all important stuff.
just to really drill down in on to conflict resolution. Have you got any moments? Because I, I'm right in thinking your your history, your grassroots history was as a as a fighter pilot and was as an F six navigate leader. Navigate leader. Navigate leader. Yeah, and yeah. in, in the tornado in the tornado aircraft. Fantastic. So from that from that position, or indeed even before that, is there any examples where? Conflict conflict resolution has gone wrong for you, where where you've 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 maybe misstepped in conflict and learned through that process. It's it's the operational level, I think, which is it, it, it is where you need to sometimes reverse engineer and, and and go back to politicians, go back to senior commanders, and, and ask them: Is it is this what you really mean? Is is this what you really had in mind? Is this your instinct? Because any planning, when you when you when you when you're planning an operation, you know, conflict's a big leading word. You know, when you're planning an operation, because you're working at, at, at this at the operational level, turning policy into strategy, you have to start. You start planning with the end. You don't start planning at the beginning, and therefore, it's all important that you understand and you share and your common end state of what you're trying to achieve. Uh, and everything evolves around that end state and making sure that, that you plan back and how do we achieve the end state and with what means and which way and which ways, and, you know, what, what, what have we got that we can achieve the end state with hmm. setting out objectives because everything's planned around. And I think, you know, in business, in the NHS, everything's planned around objectives. But you have to make sure, whatever you're doing, if you set an objective, you have to make sure it's achievable. They don't plan to fail. You have to make sure that it's measurable because how do you know you're going to achieve it? And if you can't measure it, how do you know to move on? How do you know where you are within your resolution? How do you know where you are if you haven't set an objective that's achievable and measurable. I, I agree with you completely there, Ray. So just getting an appreciation of baseline, you know, where the baseline, where, where is the baseline that we, we can then benchmark ourselves from um, and, and then measure ourselves from. Um, and I, I think in all realms of life, getting an appreciation of baseline, you know, what's your baseline default position when you are under stress? What's your baseline default position when you're hungry, tired, late, um, you know, when you're full of emotion? What's your baseline uh, default position when you are, when, when you are under stress, making decisions? And, and I, I think that harkens towards knowing yourself and knowing knowing where you where you sit. You know when you are squeezed. When where where, where who is Ray when he's under pressure? When he's fourteen hours into a twelve-hour shift? When he's not really eaten much that day? When he's when you've got multiple stresses on you? And I suppose I suppose in my mind, the more you you get gain can gain insight into yourself, the more you can then hopefully circumnavigate some of those pitfalls been involved in a lot of operations tactically, you know, from early days, the Belize, uh, Rhodesia, the Peggy came Zimbabwe. Um, I was on the ground uh, during the, the Iranian revolution. Uh, we were evacuating people out of the, uh, in Hercules in those days, evacuating people um, from the British embassy on the day after uh, the Ayatollah came back, you know, all the way through to the operational level of um, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and lots in between. And I find it a bit, from 
my perspective, and I can only, and, and, I, you know, and I say, I, I hope this doesn't sound too flippant, but I, I never found myself in those stressful situations because it is what we'd always trained to do. It is what, you know, and, and though it sounds dreadful, it, it, actually being employed in operations, you're only doing your job. Where in peacetime, where you train, you know, you tend to find you get involved in all sorts of other things, like running the youth club, doing this, doing that, and of course, family at home, blah. Um, and it, it, it's almost fun to be on operations. That's, I know that sounds dreadful, <laughs> but it, it, it is what you're trying to do. And you're focusing on your job, you know, and, uh, and there's a great professional pride to getting it right uh, and, and working, you know, with others, because invariably, the military as a team and wherever you are you're either a follower or a leader within that team or maybe a commander and, and i think i know you've focused recently on 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 leadership but there is an aspect because the military has commanders you know they're not called leaders they're called commanders and there's a huge i think there's a huge fundamental difference in commanding and, and leading, they should be one of the same. You should ensure that, you know, we've all come across commanders who perhaps aren't leaders. Because you're granted command, you're given the authority of command, and you, with that, you're given command authority and executive powers. So your delegated command, this is your command, and here's your span of control. So you have command and control of this area here. And at every level, you know, the commanders at every level, you are, you, you're, you're given authority of command. So it doesn't naturally follow on that they're leaders. Within that command structure, you might have leaders follow, you know, good quality leaders at every level follow down. But command... It, it, it cannot be delegated. It's yours. Cannot, you know. However, through your control measures, through a span of command, if if your remit is too big, you can delegate down through control. I give you the span of this, so you end up with commanders at every level. That it's not always. I say it, it, it's really interesting then to, to open the debate of you know is commanding and leadership the same thing? Well, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. you, you, you naturally hope it is, and you naturally hope. But these guys have been given authority of command. I have got the ability to lead, but it's not always the case. It's really that is interesting, actually. And, and we drilled down into a little bit around leadership and and uh, versus management, and um, and 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 the pros and cons of each uh, with Tim last time, actually. But but yeah. you make a really interesting uh, point there, um, Ray. So Ray, just just to, just to pivot slightly and look at. Um, so the strategy of conflict and game theory related to conflict resolution. So I know we spoke prior to prior to now around just planning for every eventuality and something that Tim mentioned before on a previous podcast around, you know, the enemy. And this relates to patients. Patients never do what you want them to do necessarily. Sometimes they do, but a lot of times they don't. So they don't necessarily react, react to the treatments. You know, in this COVID-19 pandemic, not every patient's reacted the same way. We've had some really weird and wonderful pathology we've seen in front of our eyes. They don't necessarily respond in the way they, you, that you want them to. How, how have you or would you advocate um, sort of game theory in relation to planning and preparation, navigating conflict? 
I would define myself as, as a strategist. I, I, you know, strategy, that word is all important. And I think it's, it's what you're aiming at with your, you know, how do you game plan? We've talked about the three levels, so I'm not going to go on again there anymore. But, you know, um, once you're given policy, once you've managed to find the, the end state that you're trying to achieve, you know, it's it's really what we what process do we use? And and there is a, a, a military process, and uh, it's basically just a very simplistic uh, template for planning, and it, it, it's called the estimate. And it's taking um, that strategic guidance that you've been given. The, the you know what is it you're trying to achieve, Minister? Because again, stress that they cannot be a military man that sets the end state. Uh, and taking that uh, and turning it into strategy. Now, what is strategy? First, you know, there's it's it's a word that's you know strategic decision making. Well, that's not strategy. You know, that's how many hospitals are we going to have? How many C seventeen aircraft are we going to buy for the RAF? Strategic decision making. That's not you know. We've talked about the strategic level. Well, that's not it either. That's a level that, you know. So what is strategy? To me, the simple definition of strategy is um, it, it's what we're going to do. It, it, it's the ways and the means and the ends that create your plan. Okay, we've been talked about the ends. We're given the ends. So now you have to work out, well, if that's what you want, if that's what you want, how are we going to achieve it? What, what ways have we got, you know? And how can we approach and the experience lines of operations we have to to do this? And if we're going to do this, what are we going to have? We got the means to do it. And through all that, to get to those ends, you set your objectives. You know, you, so through the ways and the means, making sure we can achieve it, making sure that objective ways and means. So you come up with lines of operations which lead to perhaps you know decisive places where you're going to be, and then through to your end state. Now, as you rightfully say, <laughs> you know, it might be, and it's very complicated because uh, it might be that your perfect lines of, of operation on a huge whiteboard that you've planned meticulously with lots of yellow sticky uh, stickies and everything else and then written into a large operational plan ends up not quite working. So you, you, you need within that, within that planning process to think about what what in, in in military terms are called branches you know so if 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 this doesn't happen we need to branch a different way and sequels well you know if that doesn't happen what are we going to do next you know and and so there is branches and sequels uh, to make to come to that end um and part of the planning process um is wargaming you know is is it sounds very dramatic, wargaming. It isn't dramatic as it sounds. It's actually going through your plan and having a team set aside. You know, we traditionally have always had red and blue teams. You know, blue teams being the good chaps, red teams being the, you know. It's having a red team with detailed intelligence and good people feeding information to look at, well, what, what might the enemy do? What can you do? What branches and sequels do you need to think about? So it is, it is, if you have the time, because however long you've got to plan any operation, you'll take that, you'll fill that time. In a day, in a year, you'll fill that time. And so having having red team members actually come up and and, and 
approach the fact that you know well this might not happen. What, what, I'm, if you do that, I'm going to do this. Now what are you going to do? Can you overplan, Ray? Can is there is there a facet of because as you just said there, you know, if I give you a day to plan an operation, albeit um, a, a, a two or three day operation, um, then you'll take all day. Uh, if I say you've got an hour to plan that operation, um, is I think what you've got to remember is uh, you know this is purely again from a, a military background, but. In business, in the NHS, and you, 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 you know probably what's going to happen roughly, and you know, you know, and uh, information and good intelligence leads to what we call contingency planning. So planning goes on all the time, you know, secret planning on a shelf, you know, just in case. And so, if there's a shortage of time, the contingency plan comes out, and you know, there is normally a contingency plan, but. You know, I guess that you know that always doesn't happen. If you take example of uh, you know Twin Towers in New York, that was completely out of the blue, took everybody by surprise, and within fourteen days there were you know there were feet on the ground in Afghanistan, so people had to plan very quickly. Yeah. So there's different ways and there's different means. Uh, contingencies exist, but you might have to plan quickly. But uh, you know, it still doesn't <laughs> escape the fact. If you're given an hour to plan, you'll fill it. If you're given a year to plan, you'll fill it. Really? You know, yeah. And you'll keep going over it. Is it over planning? I think. Uh, I, I, there was, I think it was Eisenhower or something. You know, there's a great quote that um, that is never a bad plan, but there could be bad planning. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is very apt. Indeed, indeed. Planning is everything, basically. Absolutely, absolutely, and I, I think you're right. It's a dichotomy. Um, not only I think the, the planning is 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 essential, um, but you're right. The dichotomy is actually may, maybe not over planning, but but certainly planning enough so that you can you can again benchmark what works. Really, um, we have got quick drills. So we've got if a patient's deteriorating right in front of our face, we've got you know quick drills versus versus a, 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 a nice calm, steady approach to anesthetizing a patient um when when i was working on um hems you know we've got nice steady calm considerate considerated judicial plans to put that patient asleep in a nice safe approach and then versus the patient which is dying in front of your face and has probably got 30 seconds to live or, or maybe a little bit longer but but certainly not not the nice calm and it's quick drills it's quick action drills we can't plan we can't necessarily take our time it's one two three four this is this is happening and it's happening now and so and again that's an example of a contingency uh, probably a, a contingency checklist um, which is a quick drills checklist, which, for instance, on, a, on as a navigator of a tornado from a situational awareness perspective, if you are lost and or under direct fire, a quick drill, 30 seconds, we do this, no, this, and this. No, that's just a certain amount of, uh, that's a certain amount of position at the moment. But what we actually have, and I think, you know, in, in all aircraft, and including, um, you know, airliners, because uh, the pretty much aviation um, is... Uh, we have flip cards, okay, and in those flip cards we have bold face drills, and the bold face drills, things like engine fire, uh, generator failure, you know, um, are you have to know, so you don't have time to get their bold face. So you, you know, 
but you know where they are. So you flick to them and then you go through the subsequent kills. And it's exactly the same. You know, it, 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 if, if, if suddenly, you know, you have to get away from the ground and uh, settle the airplane down and uh, perhaps close down an engine, etc., etc. You know, as a two-man crew, you need to know exactly what you're doing and how to do them. And they're, they're, and they're your urgent action drills, the bullfish drills. Yeah. Everything else we do, everything that we're conditioned to do from starting our aviation career, you know, even through to later life, like the estimate process, um, it's familiarization, it's, 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 it's knowledge, it's knowing what the situation is. So though you're, uh, you know, you're the duck above the water, underneath your feet are going ten to the dozen, you have an idea of where yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah, I can relate to that, I can certainly relate to that, I'm Ray. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just to look, to, just to ask, Ray, because I'm mindful, you know, you, you yourself have probably been in situations where you've been there to consult um, at go, a government level, at policy level, strategic level, from an operational background. Um, when there is conflict or indeed increased pressure, how have you facilitated team cohesion? The most complex situation that I was involved with, uh, an awesome job, an awesome, awesome uh, job. Uh, which again, you know, you talk about being under pressure, but it, it, it was enjoyable because of the pressure. Whereas um, I, I was the liaison in, Af- in Afghanistan in 2006 between uh, the commander ISAF, so uh, as a colonel at the time, between commander ISAF and um, President Karzai. So every day, uh, in my little armored vehicle with my huge soldiers who protected me from uh, getting in there. We, we worked, um, I worked inside Karzai's palace. But um, the people, it was also, you know, within that structure, you know, ISAF itself, the International Security and Assistance Force, who were the military presence, okay, were NATO-led, but they were NATO-led on a UN mandate. So NATO had no mandate to be in Afghanistan. The UN had a mandate to be in Afghanistan. But NATO, because of its structures, had the ability to put together headquarters and lead on behalf of the UN. So it was a UN mandate. But within that, as we know, in 2001, the US were there in a pretty forceful way, which is part of NATO, part of ISAF, but also doing a national role of counterterrorism. The UN and my time in uh, Kabul, the greatest admiration I had and found for the people out there was actually United Nations staff. They were awesome. They were absolutely fantastic. And, you know, they knew how to react in, in, in these complex missions. And, you know, you never saw them panning at all. They were fantastic. Uh, they were called UNAMA, the UN uh, Assistance Mission to Afghanistan. Uh, uh, great people to work with. Of course, you had the Afghan government, the central government. You had Afghan governors, who, because the regions were huge. Uh, people perhaps don't appreciate how large Afghanistan is. Much, much larger than, say, Iraq. You know, a massive country. But within them, they had governors. You had warlords who were friendly warlords, warlords who were not, you know. And then you had an amazing number of also very good people, but sometimes loose cannons within your team uh, were NGOs, non-governmental organizations, Red Cross, Red Crescent, and, you know, the, the list goes on. Um, 
how do you oh, I was in the middle of all that which is amazing yeah, yeah. how do you bring them together I I, 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 I I would use the term you align compasses they've all got different objectives they're all rogue in their own way um, you've got nations who want to be leading you've got nations who are happy just to supply forces forces are trained for war fighting conflict and this is a peacekeeping um you know and and the reality soon set in you know that the, the un mission it was about winning hearts and minds but in, in between all that there was conflict going on with with taliban uh, doing some wicked things and you know some very senior bad leaders on on the opposite side strategic communications getting everybody into the same alignment is really really important so putting that compasses first of all just getting compasses pointing in the same direction extremely difficult even amongst friendly forces even amongst you know within the region so the way the 50 nations were set up that you know the big nations all had their own area so the uk had helmand David Richards, who was a fantastic commander, a fantastic leader, he was a man who was lead, uh, was Commander ISAF on behalf of the UN, working on a NATO mandate. Uh, but even UN, UK forces would go their own way if they felt U, uh, UK national interests were slightly diverging from what was going on in the centre. Incredibly complex, mm. incredibly complex situation. Uh, and of course, and I, you know, I think this is also a very interesting point to, to the Taliban, to the Afghan on the ground who will counter any foreign bodies being in their nation. They're fighting, their whole life is evolved around what's going on. So they're fighting what we would term a total war, where everybody going, you know, me included, I was there for six months, you know, we, we float in, float out. And come back to our riverside cafes and you know the, the rest of the country weren't interested that's not true not interested either but but you know it was a limited it was a you know we'll dip our feet in here as a democracy trying to support what's going on and in 2011 even i said we're leaving in 2014 well how, how do you bring that complex situation to align and to do good if the enemy know well, you're leaving in 2014, we'll just sit quiet. Thanks very much. Mm. So really, really, really complex situations. Yeah, I can imagine actually, and just 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 to bring it really onto a clinical context, you know, just just getting that shared mental model out. You know, it's a very different set of competing circumstances you know the immediacy of a, a of a scene versus a very complex international political um and uh, military and ngo um no, sort wait, dime, 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 dime i can't say this i can't say this more you know underpinning it all was culture yeah whatever you did the taliban would go and sit in a tent with a few mates have a cup of chai and everything you've done was undone in a, in a, in a minute and of course, in that situation, you know, I don't, I'm trying to relate this to perhaps an NHS, I'm sure, but, you know, actually military action can be a blunt instrument. So, you know, if you, you've, got the, you've got the wherewithal to put a small diameter weapon from, you know, an air, you know from, from a launch from an aircraft into a window to kill a Taliban leader, 
but you're probably going to kill his wife. You're probably going to kill his family, a few goats, and maybe destroy the house next door. But at two o'clock in the morning, you're going to wake the whole village. When you're trying to win hearts and minds, you know, is it better just to let that rather nasty man live and keep the village on side, at least have a chance to get them to to, to support you or for them to all wake up and, you know, it's just human nature and culturally as well. They say, well, what are they doing? You know, and what's Karzai doing allowing my village to be bombed in the middle of the night? Indeed. So you can, it, you have to weigh up what, is that a blunt instrument really? Is that doing the opposite to what you're actually trying to achieve? You know, and it, it, it's, it, as I say, it's very complex, but you start with aligning encompasses to at least try and get a common objective. What do we is we're trying to achieve? Yeah, and I, I can relate to that, Ray, because I think you know when when you're unseen, you know there has to be a shared mental model. There has to be a semblance of of, of, of a shared plan, which which we, which we all come under alignment for. And you know, me being a follower of that plan, not only a leader. So so, but but to express that plan and then to to execute the plan, but that everyone is fully aware of the plan on scene. You know that we want to come from here to here. We we might need a few sequential steps in the process, but but that that everyone is consistently aware. And it get, comes down to information, information, information. Share, 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 and overshare. Overshare what's on my mind. Be hopefully vulnerable in the process, not above reproach. But but just just get get aligning those compasses is really is is sharing, 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 and then and then seeing what I've not shared because it might not even register on my compass. Is there any anything any, anyone else has got to add? Um, but but then that 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 sort of uniformity of purpose. Um, can then, I suppose, hopefully drive everyone in in that same direction. And 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 like you said, you know, the default position might be I need to follow. I need to be a follower as well as a leader in and and change tact. But 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 as this situation, especially in dynamic situations where change is sometimes imposed on you, how they, having that shared mental model, like you said, is key and almost might be the only objective for the first couple of minutes, really. Is getting a shared plan together because and and then extrapolate that up onto the international, you know, multi-site, multi-agency platform. That might take days and or weeks rather than just hours or seconds or minutes. But 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 having proceeding in one direction with clear objectives. I spoke about General Richards. You know, uh, David Richards. He went on to be chief of defence staff, but he was within the headquarters, which was a huge multinational headquarters in the centre of Kabul, every corner, every wall, everywhere you sat, on the wall was his directive and guidance, what he was wanted to achieve. You know, and it sounds very simple, but you couldn't move in the headquarters without knowing. What he wanted. What, what yeah. he wanted. And, you know, and I, it's very impressive. You know, to, to, you know, because how do you get your message out? Every single, you know, multinational unit. So nobody left was in that headquarters from the driver, you know, yeah. to the senior man. Everybody knew what David Richards wanted. Yeah. Uh, 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 you know, that was really, really important. Fantastic. Because you have to have unity of purpose. Absolutely. And that's what, that, I guess unity of purpose is the same way as let's get our compasses all pointing in the same direction. You know, you, you, you can't have unity command because he doesn't command the NGOs. He doesn't, but you have to have a unity of purpose. Yeah. yeah. So, Ray, just to change tack slightly and look at de-escalation techniques in your mind, 
um, from just very maybe very a very simple perspective and or more complex perspective. But how would you de-escalate a conflict situation uh, in your mind, either just with a, with with a, a, a fellow colleague or personnel, or maybe even a team? How what what what's worked for you in the past in, in regards to de-escalating um, situations of high stress or tension? In the back of my mind, ringing out loud and clear right now is honesty. You know, it's no good. You know, you have to be honest and you have to be truthful. And uh, you have to, uh, 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 uh. again, another uh, another chap I know went on to be chief of defence staff as well, actually. <laughs> we were junior officers together. But he always used to say to me, you know, the strongest, the, 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 the moral courage, moral courage is is... Is a, is a is a great strength. So you know, having having the courage to say what's right and say it at the right time um, it, it, it is is all important. Uh, aligned with honesty uh, and, and saying as it is and, and moving on. Um, and that's the diff. You know, I talked about command and leadership. As a commander, you're given the authority to just say enough's enough. We're going this way be it right or wrong. And sometimes it's wrong. And that's when you need that moral courage to say, can I have a word, please, sir? <laughs> you know, are you sure this is what you want to do? Yeah. And, and, and change things. You know, um, the, uh, the, the, the Allied force in Bosnia in 1999, they, they, you know, the, they chose the wrong end state, the wrong end, they would, you know, and eventually enough people spoke up and said, this is not what we need to be doing. We need to be doing it. And it was changed. And within three days, they got resolution. Three days. Mm. Because they changed their objectives and their thought process. So you have to have moral courage. That's fantastic, right? Yeah, it does. No, it absolutely does. And and I think you're right, learning how to speak up and empowering people to speak up. But the default... Uh, it, now, that second factor is really important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not, you know that, that's the problem with command. If you don't, you know, you have to. There are some brilliant young captains and majors floating around this military, you know. And and if you look at successful business, you know, entrepreneurs, they're in the they're in the thirties. They're not in their fifties. And generally, senior command comes in the in, in a government institution when you're too old. Not that too old. That's the wrong thing to say. But you know. Very, very sharp minds. So give them the give them empowerment. Mm. Let them let them lead at their level, and let them give you their ideas. And and don't be embarrassed to listen. Yeah, I think listening is key, like you said is key as well because it has to it has to it has to land. Um, and and just you're right from empowering and and listening. There's that you can make some real forward. Forward, forward motion really because uh, you know I love an analogy that um, one of my other guests made which is you know there, there are people in the room and there are aspects that you that are unseen to you especially if you're if you're if you're new to a scene medically or, or you're new to a plan strategically or, or a military plan and, and there's people been who, who've been boots on the ground for, for quite a while there, there are unknown unknowns to you quite quite large ones that actually if unless you you sit back and listen, and we were just talking offline about about this, but just taking a position, a default position of listening, um, 
and then and then and then speaking. Um, and then I think that that seems to be the combination. Which really, I've seen some fantastic leaders within the medical medical world. Listen to the scene. Listen to clinicians. Read body language well. Know where to come in, but know how to sit back and listen. And know your team. Yeah. Because there might be, you know, what an old favourite saying is, you know, them, he doesn't say much when he does speak, listen. Yeah. Yeah. They're the people. Yeah. That generally get it right. Yeah. Fantastic, Ray. Fantastic. So, um, just just really quickly, I w- wanted just to touch on something we spoke of earlier around mentoring and coaching, Ray, because I, I know they're succinctly different. In your mind, what 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 are the fundamentals of each, and how do, what's the interplay? Um, I think they're both. You know, I, 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 I think they both have their position. Um, I, I, I'm going to use a a model now which is very simple <laughs> and uh, you can draw it out yourself it's very easy it's the four Audi circles the Audi measure car company of the four overlapping circles and uh, I actually used this model before uh, and I think it you know particularly from a military sense and I'm sure it can be applied elsewhere but those four circles if you use the first one and call the first one education Everybody needs to know where they where they sit, what it is they do, what you know, where am I, what am I doing? Education, and and you know, I'm a, I'm a strong believer in in education sits alongside training, and they're two completely different things. Educating and training. So the second circle is training. First of education overlaps. There are grey areas between the two, and training is uh, you individually train. Now you're educated. Now you, what is my job? What do I do? And then I train to do that job. Now I train to sit with the team in which I'm doing that job with. And perhaps I train collectively with others now within my team. My teams are going to train elsewhere. You know? So training is, is a huge circle. But once you've educated, you're now pretty well trained. You then put it in, you exercise, you, you, you simulate you know, what it is that you're doing. You do that collectively, jointly, maybe militarily, internationally, you know, uh, I'm sure a lot of people, you know, have heard about red flag and exercises like that in the in the in the United States, where you know a lot of you know major wars go on over uh, the Mojave Desert, uh, and because in the first ten missions of war, you learn more than all the others. And so, if you can simulate those ten, so you exercise, and then from exercise, you then go on to operations. So you, you actually do it for real. All this is leading to what you do for real. Uh, and that can be done, and I talked about, you know, that's perhaps the tactical level, at the operational level as well, you know, because you can't just move into the operational level and think you're going to, you know, command and control if you haven't educated, trained and exercised. And therefore, you talked, you know, you talked about coaching, life coaching. Well, I, I think coaching, to me, sits in that first level. It's all important that you, 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 you understand, you know, and I, 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 you know, you talked about Tim earlier, who was on, I think, your last podcast. I've been in the 14th position. He's, he's a master of life coaching. He's a master. And and, he's, and I've helped him. And I've learned from him. You know, but coaching, you can coach it. You know, you don't have to understand the final output to give life coaching. 
as a mentor, perhaps comes in that third bubble when you're exercising, when you're under pressure, you know, realistically, when somebody can sit on your shoulder and go, well, I've done this before. And actually, you know, experiences, it counts for an awful lot. So you're, it's a more specific role of mentoring. And I think, you know, I, I do believe mentoring has a great position. And having worked in this United States for the Americans, I think the Americans do it much better than we as the British do. I think they much more accept previous experience and will listen to it, you know, and, and, and learn from it. Uh, we're a little bit arrogant when it comes to mentoring, I think, because we're British. Therefore, I, I know everything there is to know because I didn't get where I got today without being very clever. And so, you know, there is a, there is a reluctance to mentoring in the UK where there isn't in, in the States. That's what I found. So I, I think they, you know, they do sit, they both sit in that Audi four circle model, but in different levels. And I think there's a decision for both of them. And I, you know, I think they're both very, very uh, useful tools. Indeed, indeed, absolutely. Um, so, so just looking at um, a couple of things, really, Ray. Um, just I've got three sort of f- questions, and two of them are tied up in one question, really. So I'll I'll approach them in sequentially. I'm actually going to tie the two questions around failure up together because I think you know learning from failure and how we approach failure is is, is quite fundamental. But before we, we before we look at that, Ray, I just wanted to get from your mind. Um, any tools that you use for decision-making under sort of incomplete information? And I suppose this question really is born out of the fact that when I'm on scene as a, as a critical care paramedic, I quite rarely have the full picture. I think the, the picture comes to you in little, little bits of information, not necessarily chronologically, not necessarily sequentially. It comes to you at different times and, and, and you still have to act quite quickly with incomplete information. But how do you approach that? Um, yeah, that's a great question, I think. Um, that, we, we talk very, very, very briefly about this process of the estimate of planning at the operational level. Uh, uh, there's no way when you start the plan you know everything. Now, this is different to the tactical level because the tactical level, you have to make instant decisions because, you know, particularly if you're uh, flying either in a helicopter or fast jet, you know, you've got to make decisions now because time is going very quickly. But from a planning and operational planning perspective, you know, you you have to plan with assumptions. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard this before, but, you know, the word assume, A-double-S spells ass, you and then me. So assumptions can make a big ass out of you and of me. And uh, I think that's... So, you must revisit, you must, you know, if you make assumptions, you must keep it in the back of your mind that that's what it was. And if the truth, if you get more intelligence, if you get more reality coming in, then you have to change what you're doing to the reality, not the assumption you made in the first place. So you have to go to assumptions, you know, but you have to be aware that that's exactly what they were. And you have to apply reality and truth and what I, I think what I've seen in the past is the natural human nature of not going back to check your assumptions. We've done that, we'll move on. And, I, and, and that gets you into all sorts of problems. All sorts of problems. And there's some major... I mean, I can tell you... I mean, I, didn't, I don't think I'm giving any state secrets away, but 
in the 2003 war against uh, you know the, the invasion of Iraqi freedom, as it was called by the Americans, uh, the British contingent assumed that they would be allowed to com uh, 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 mount operations out of Turkey. And the whole plan was for the Brits to come north from Turkey as the Americans went south. And the Turks said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> so the entire plan was made on an assumption, which wasn't correct. So assumptions can really bite you in a big, big way. So you have to go back and make sure that you keep reality aligned with your assumptions. So I, I really so that's there's some really key principles there, Ray, around like you say testing assumptions and 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 also constantly revi revisiting the foundation of decision making, and and retesting retesting just to make sure that a you're not missing anything and b you're right that those that there's not been drift or 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 uh, maneuver from those assumptions and I really like that concept. If anything changes, you have to go back. That's great. Any change, yeah. You have to go back. And that's what we always say in healthcare. So patient assessment, patient assessment, patient assessment. Always revisit your patient assessment because patients change. Pathology yeah. changes in front of your face. If, 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 you know, if someone's been stabbed or, or hit by a car, you know, things have changed in five, ten minutes, maybe even a couple of minutes. But coming back to that patient assessment to test your assumptions and your initial findings. And I think, I think that's fantastic. Building that into the plan and a, a, a revisiting of, of your initial assumptions or an initial assessments, I think is fundamental. It's not to do that. That is the problem. Because I've moved on, I'm, I'm now here. Can I, can I just, I just came to mind while you, you know, if you don't mind me adding this. We, we, in, 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 uh, in, in, Western military uh, 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 domain, you know, we, we, we work to doctrine, as do other nations. Doctrine is best practice. Okay. And certainly, you know, I talked about this process called the estimate, and, you know, there's doctrine uh, that is a default position. You're, you're, so when you start on an operation, at the beginning, everybody involved knows where you start but um, i think tim you know uh touched on this very sort of lightly really but he, he talked about you know the enemy no deal they want you know never do what you expect them to do so every operation is different you know which you start but it's so important that you have a default position where you all know where you started from because then as a team, as as a, as as an organisation, you know why you've gone down this route. You know it might not be the route you know because every operation is different. So it might not be the route you want to go down. It might not be the way it's evolved, but it evolves, and you're still trying to achieve the end state. You're still trying to move forward in your lines of operation, but it isn't. You know it's probably not written in doctrine because you've never been there before. You know doctrine is what we do for best practice, which is why it's really important that you have a set of rules that you all are aware of, you all start from. But I, I assume, you know, every patient is different for many, many different reasons. I mean, about the, you know, we're at the sort of technical level, but it's the same. If you know where you've, if you, at least you know where you started from, you understand why you would, where you're at, where you are right yeah. now, and what you have to do. Yeah. So doctrine is a default position. It isn't the end position. Yeah. 
I, th- I think that's that's a fantastic point, Ray, and I think it's well made because, um, like you said, you know, having Plan B because so one thing I talk about is you know, having one plan is none and two plans are one because actually if you've got one plan and just one plan and that fails, you're nowhere. If you, at least if you've got two plans and that fails, you you're left with a plan. But you know, in critical care, you three or four plans but having that default plan in your mind and then a, and a third plan because actually preparing for the i mean this tees us up for the next question quite nicely prepare that for the first plan first pass failure you know just for the first plan is if if you prepare for failure and it, and it happens which a lot of times it does because patients don't do what you want them to do sometimes they were going to die regardless of what you did exactly you've got plan plan b in in the pockets and or and or plan yeah, it's it's it's, think, it's fascinating. I think it comes back down to that, you know, we we right at the very beginning, you know, the, the the plan is useless, but planning is everything. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fantastic principle. Planning, planning, planning. Right, and, yeah. uh, you know, so can you ever plan? I don't think so. So, Ray, to that to that point around failure, and just maybe looking at some of the failures you've experienced in in your life. I know we've touched on this already, but just rolling two questions into one, really. So how have you approached, personally approached sort of failure of task in the past? And and how have you sort of learned from some of those failures into into a place of where you've probably harnessed them or maybe harnessed them to your advantage? Yeah, I, you know, again, it's a very good question. And I don't, it's just that the, it, 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 it's just the definition of the beast that we are as military men. Um, you know, we we train all the time and we debrief hard, very hard. And, you know, I, I came from a very hard school for debriefs from a very bunch of capable guys who, uh, you know, would really make, you know, we bring out every every issue of forgiving your flying. Um, but only in you know to improve the sum of the the the, the, the wall and you know I, I did most of my you know I was a, I was a Cold War warrior and the people I you know used to fly and uh, debrief heavily with uh, you know we'd all be in the bar at five o'clock on a Friday and in fact three four times a year we still meet thirty years on in the bar uh, in London uh, now <laughs> so. Um, it, 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 yeah, I, you know, I, I guess it's how you define failure. I mean, because, in, in, you know, how do you define failure? Um, you just learn from, from your mistakes, from your debriefs and move on. The one thing I have learned, I think, um, uh, overall, you know, and uh, it is that as I've moved forward, as I've become more educated in my left-hand LV cycle, as I've done more jobs, uh, as I moved on to teach at the War College and things like that, I've retrospectively looked back and realised that I could have done things better. You know, I could have, for example, you, you, you talked about mentoring. When I was uh, the commander at, you know, at uh, Spade Island and RAF Station in the north of England, if I do that again, I would have brought back mentoring, which I never did during that. I should have, I should have mentored the junior officers a lot more than I did. Uh, it, 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 you look back, and I think I, you know, you learn from your perhaps lessons too late, you know, life. But but that's what experience is all about. 
Uh, and so, you know, the, uh, retrospectively, I think I've learned an awful lot uh, and wish I'd applied it, which I didn't at the time. At the time, I didn't realise. I wasn't applying it. You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> I'm re- reframing failure as well, Ray. Really, so so actually, failure turns is 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 the baseline that failure is is is, is maybe, or it's, you didn't achieve the outcome or the predefined outcome, but it's it's learning. And if you reframe failure as learning, um, so that you will achieve achieve your outcome next time. And even even in some of the most really difficult situations, Ray, in in my life, you know, failure for me is bringing issues to friends. To, to close friends and saying, how can I do this differently next time? What have I missed this time? And what what good can I take from this experience, which is going to make me a better person? Now that, that that's very you know pragmatic of me to say that. At the, at the time, I'm you know rocked but with emotion, rocked with rejection. You know, just feel wholeheartedly rejected and or despondent but but so but sitting outside of emotion is hopefully a a, a desire to learn both from from success and failure and actually success isn't as such such a great teacher as failure is so failure probably probably taught me more than 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 success has we we talk you know we we push on leadership and command and things like that but i i think it's 100% 100% true that when you look back on experience, you learn more from a bad leader than you do from a good one. Because you learn how not to do it. It is a good one. You just tend to take it in your stride. This is a hey, life's good. But if you look back and you know that this guy's not a good you I think you really do learn more from a bad leader than you do from a good one. Yeah, and that's the power of that's the power of sort of negative inspiration, really. So take you know, looking at the negatives, and we've I, I, you know, I think we've all been under bad leadership in the past, and I I you know, I'm not admonished of that. And but the power of negative inspiration, like you say, being able to eat the meat and spit out the bones. So take the aspects that you can learn, that the good the, the traits that you'll promise never to be like, or indeed even the aspects of a bad leader which work, which work well. And, and taking those and using them to your to, to, to your benefit, but leaving leaving the rest. And 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 you're right. You can still learn through the ecosystem and decision making of a uh, of poor leadership. Probably, like you said, even more so. Something. So, Ray, something you've interesting you said there, which which brings us into land uh, metaphorically, so to speak, quite nicely, is and, and something we both share. Um, quite strongly actually is a passion for debrief and because I think there's a lot of feedback in debrief there's a lot of learning in debrief and there's a lot of self-reflection in debrief as well and I think the more vulnerable you make yourself in debrief the more you can possibly learn but so just to look at debrief what are some of the aspects really that um, that we could use to our how have you debriefed how have you how have you sort of get the best out of the debrief in the past um, but at different levels, and I think there are two debriefs, aren't they? There's the hot debrief, you know, which I think is the all important one. Yeah, to me, it comes down again, and I'm, I'm going to ask you a question in a minute. But it comes down again to these levels, you know, the levels, and, and at the tactical level, the hot debrief, it, I, I, I think, it, it is full of merit because you walk away knowing, you know, and as long as you have that moral courage, uh, as long as you're respectful, and and it's in the debrief, stays in the debrief. We all learn from it and walk away, and we're all better for it. But you've got to be hard, yeah. You know, you've got to be hard, and you've got to be honest. And, and what, you know, as I say to you, uh, you know, I was brought up 
um, when you're flying fast jets, we tend to fly in a four-ship formation. You, you, the, the, the model for, is four aeroplanes. And you have an objective, you have a task, and you go do that task. It, it, it's a training task. But the reason you're training is to come back and debrief. You know, and 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 you get back. And um, and, and what is really nice, uh, though it's a military structure, it didn't matter what rank is in the room. You leave the rank at the door and you debrief as you know the four ship eight guys, eight aviators, and you're very open and honest with each other about what actually happened out there. And you put your rank back on as you leave the door. You know, and you take your uh, you, you take the debrief as it comes, um, and you know I was brought up on that, and uh, and I believe very strongly you know that's the way to do it. The other debrief, and both of them are the same. It, it, you know, is is the colder debrief, the longer look. And there's a great you know I you hear the term quite often. You know what 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 lessons have we learned? Well, you, you don't. You don't learn any lessons unless you identify your errors and then take remedial action. So it's the remedial action which is the learning lesson. So, you know, it's no good then in any debrief, be it hot or cold, in taking things forward and not actually taking remedial action to put that right. Because that's what it's all about. You know, it's not just to slap you around the face with a wet fish and then I'll walk away and have a beer. It's about taking remedial action that will make the situation the you know you, you you you've learned the lesson because you've taken that remedial action and you've put it right. You don't learn lessons if you do nothing about it. So a couple of things you've said there, Ray, which really resonate with me is a leaving your ego at the door and or rank at the door, because uh, I, I think, you know, you, you've got to allow other people to speak into your life, into your practice, your decision making and 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 your performance i think to to learn from that um and and another thing really is about that transparency um and 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 being transparent to to a point where it's 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 not necessarily painful but but actually what i've realized especially through my failures when when i've debriefed with other colleagues contemporaries who i've got a lot of respect for the more honest and vulnerable i can be in front of them the less people are potentially going to draw their arrows and shoot them at me i think i i i if i if i can come to a default position where i can articulate failings and and say i really misstepped here here and here other people are a lot less quick to to then draw draw arrows towards me so i and 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 then it becomes a net positive conversation um the 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 colleagues i've really seen over, over sort of 18 to 20 years really that that have sort of crashed and burned so to speak are the ones which come out of the gate in in a very defensive fashion and really try to admonish either poor decision making or performance uh, come up with all these excuses and maintain this kind of beyond reproach baseline and and, and that and has I, never worked I, I, I don't, and i've seen i've witnessed in recent times, more of that position than the moral courage, honest position. And I, I, you know, whether society is is breeding that, you know, where we are now with that, I, I, I don't know. You know, but just accept responsibility, moral courage. Pe- people uh, look at the military and think it's a disciplined organisation. The biggest discipline that's taught in the military 
across all three, you know, air, land, and sea, is self-discipline. Having, you know, self-discipline is the most important thing. You know, it's not about, uh, it, it, it isn't, you know, about jumping when somebody shouts. It's about looking at yourself and making sure that you do the best you can through your own self-discipline. And being honest and having moral courage to speak when it's time to speak. Ray, listen, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciated your time today and your perspectives. No, no, it's no, it's, I enjoyed it. Can't we go on for another hour? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But um, yeah, thanks for tuning in today, guys, to, to the Prosport Care podcast, and we'll, we'll catch you next time. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care podcast on the Medics Academy Network.